So Hillel was one of the greatest Jewish leaders in our history. He lived during the first century BCE, or before the current counting, um, during what's called the Hasmonean period, that when the descendants of the original Maccabees were ruling Israel. And he lived during the reign of Herod. Um, we'll talk about that in just a moment. And he's, he died about the year 8, the year 8 of our current counting, so a little over 2,000 years ago. His father was from the tribe of, so he, he, he lived, firstly, Hillel lived a very long time ago, over 2,000 years, he died over 2,000 years ago. As a result, while we have many, many quotes from Hillel and many times that, you know, stories about Hillel, piecing together his, we don't have any full biography of Hillel, and because it was so long ago, piecing together details of history from that period is sometimes complex and hard. Um, I've given the example, I think, in previous classes when talking about history pre-going back more than a thousand years ago, definitely more than two thousand years ago. It's like putting together a five thousand piece puzzle when you only have a few hundred pieces, right? So we only have a little bit and we try to kind of picture, put together the rest. So going through Hillel's life and the period that he lived in, also um, there's some, it's, we have to piece together a piece of the story, but many details are not entirely clear. What I'm going to present is based on kind of what generally Jewish historians believe about Hillel, but again, the details are not 100% clear. So Hillel, the Talmud tells us, was born in a prominent family, to a prominent family in Babylon. His father was from the tribe of Benjamin. His mother was from the royal house of David. Um, presumably from the house of the Reish Galuta. Um, the, in Babylon at the time, there was, the Jews were led by a prince uh, who was essentially the king of the Jews in Babylon um, from, the house of from the royal house of David. And uh, Hila was, his mother was from that family. And his fa family appears to have been fairly wealthy, as many families were in Babylon at the time. Babylon is modern-day Iraq. Um, throughout, from after the destruction of the first temple, throughout the second temple period, and continuing on for a period of about 1,500 years, it was the largest Jewish community in the world and a very wealthy and very successful Jewish community. And we once did a class about the Jews of Iraq and the Iraqi Jewish community. We spoke about that more in detail. That's on the podcast. So Hillel's family appears to have been wealthy. He himself, the Talmud says, in his early life was in business, um, presumably the family business, we don't know. But then at a certain point, he decided to leave the business and go to Israel to study Torah. At the time, there were yeshivas in Babylon, but they weren't great. The great yeshivas at the time, the great centers of Torah study, were all in the land of Israel. This was during the Second Temple period. So he decides to go to Israel, leaves his family to go to Israel to study Torah. His family were pretty upset about him leaving. They didn't want him to go. They didn't think that he should give up the family business to go study Torah. And so they disowned him. They said they will refuse to support him or give him anything if he goes to the land of Israel. So he came with his family to the land of Israel. He is totally penniless, doesn't have a penny, but he comes, it's, a, it's quite a journey. Um, it's a couple hundred miles. Um, then traveling a couple hundred miles is a pretty big deal. It also is traveling to a different country. 
right? The Babylon at the time was in the Persian Empire. Jerusalem was in the Roman Empire, different empires that didn't get along. You probably had to cross some hostile uh, borders in order, to get, um, in order to get through. And so in Israel, he settles in Jerusalem, and he studies there under the leading scholars of his day, Shemaiah and Aftalion, who are both the leading scholars of the Sanhedrin, and they lead a, the great academy, the great yeshiva in Jerusalem at the time. Hillel himself is very poor because his family had disowned him. And so he would work. He had to work to support himself and his family. And he would earn half a dinar every day. From his work, he worked labor. Um, He didn't have any other skills. And he would earn half a dinar every day. Now at the time, and this doesn't seem to have been common, in Jewish history, it's actually very questionable in Jewish law. But at the time, for whatever reason, the base medrash had a fee, an entry fee, in order to keep up their um, costs, in order to pay for their costs. There was an entry fee to get, into the ho- to get into the house of study of the yeshiva at the time. And every day it costed a quarter dinar in order to get into the house of study daily. Hillel would earn a half a dinar a day using one quarter of dinar for, to cover his entry fee into the, into the um, yeshiva, into the school, and the other half a dinar to feed his family. And he lived in great poverty. One time, it was winter, it was a Friday, and he wasn't able to find any work that day, and he didn't earn anything. So his family had no food for Shabbat. For him, that was only part of the problem. The bigger problem was he had no money to gain entry into the school, into the yeshiva, to hear the classes. And so, not being able to enter, he climbed up onto the roof, and there was a skylight over there on the roof, and he put his um, ear onto the roof to be able to hear the class on the roof. It was the middle of the winter in Jerusalem. It gets pretty cold in Jerusalem. And so he, um, uh, it started to snow that day, that night. And as he's lying there, it begins to snow over him. And um, he got caught under the snow. The next morning, they come into the base medrash, into the house of study, it was called. And they look, they see it's very dark in the room. They look up and they see a person on the skylight. And so they went up, they pulled him down. And they, um, they warmed him up, even though it was Shabbos. They, warmed, they lit the fire to warm him and to revive him. They successfully revived him. And they said it was, well, of course, you're always allowed to desecrate Shabbos in order to save a life. But it was worth, the sages said it was worth desecrating the Shabbos to save the life of Hillel, who would become the greatest scholar of Israel. So Hillel remains, he continues... Um, studying becomes a recognized a great scholar Um, at some point his brother it's not clear if his brother also moved to Israel or still lived in Babylon at the time his brother Shevna who had taken over the family business and was very wealthy um, hears that his brother has become a recognized scholar and so he wants to take credit for it and he offers Hillel to support him but this time, presumably, Hillel, it's not clear if Hillel needed the money anymore. Um, and Hillel, at this point, refuses. He says, no, thank you. Um, I, 
don't want to share the credit for my Torah study. So at a certain point, it's not clear exactly when, after he had studied, Hillel returned to Babylon. While Hillel was in Babylon, was, went back to Babylon, Israel at the time went through a civil war. Um, Israel had been uh, originally during the Second Temple, had been had, the Second Temple when the Second Temple was built. Israel was under the Persian Empire. It was Cyrus who gave the initial permission to build the temple. The temple was finally built under Darius II, Daryavash, but. Darius was later the Persian Empire was conquered by the Greeks and Israel fell under Greek rule first from the Ptolemy rulers in Egypt and then from the um, Seleucids in Syria in northern Syria and so it was it, uh, Israel was under Greek rule for some 150 years and until there was a ban on Jewish practice, and we know the story of Hanukkah, where the Maccabees fought off the Greek rule, and they managed to become independent. The Maccabees, um, starting with Judah Maccabee, then seized control. In other words, they became the head of, they made themselves the head of state, and um, essentially ruled Israel themselves, first as a ruler just in name, as without a particular title. Later, their grandchildren already took the title as king of Israel. And um, the Hashmonai dynasty lasted for some 80 years. It ended when, um, after the death of um, Alex Alexander Yanai, um, his wife, Shlomit Alexander, becomes his children were young, and he... It was, a very, uh, it was a rough time for Israel, a uh, story of its own. His wife, Shlomit Alexandra, becomes queen. She's actually a sister of a great sage, Shimon ben Shatach. And then after her death, her two sons were now older, were now young adults. Um, and uh, her two sons now fought over who should be the next king of Israel. Um, her two sons, Hyrcanus and Aristobulus, and as a result, there was a civil war in Israel, and Israel was torn apart by this horrible civil war. The civil war ended when they invited the Romans, who had just captured nearby Syria, they invited the Romans to come and resolve the dispute over who should be king. The Romans came in and captured, and essentially walked right into Israel and took control of it, ending Jewish independence. Um, so uh, sometime later, the Romans then installed, over time, there were other, there was some other, some other instability, and then a couple years later, the Romans installed an Edomite who had been, um, who had been an Edomite slave from, uh, not Jewish, but had, his family had converted to Judaism. Um, his name was Herod, and um, he was installed by the Romans as a puppet king over the land of Israel. Um, Herod was um, a horrible tyrant who killed many, many people, including many of the Jewish leaders. Um, but it was during this time that the two leaders of Israel, Shemaiah and Aftalion, who had been Hillel's teachers, died. And Israel was left leaderless. Many of the leaders had been killed, had died. And uh, there was no official leader at the time. Um, and so as temporary leaders, the sages appointed 
um, brothers called the sons of Betera, B'nai Betera. We don't know what their first names were, uh, but they were the temporary leaders of Israel during this period. At this point, Hillel came back to Jerusalem. We don't know what prompted him to come back, whether he felt that he was needed in Israel or he came back um, because he wanted to teach more, study more Torah. We don't know why he came back. But at this point, he comes back to Israel. That year, Passover was on a, the first eve of Passover was on a Saturday night. It's not common. We had this last year. Uh, but every couple years, we end up with a pa- Passover on a Saturday night. The way the calendar is structured, it's not that common. But it does happen. And so if Passover is on a Saturday night, then the eve of Passover is a Saturday, is a Shabbos. During the temple times, on the day before Passover, they would slaughter the Passover sacrifice. But they weren't sure that year, it had been a number of years since Passover had last been on a, um, on a Saturday night, and the eve of Passover had been on a Shabbos, and they weren't sure if they should offer the Passover sacrifice on Shabbos that year or not, or skip it that year. They didn't know what to do. And so the leaders of Israel weren't sure either. Many of the original leaders had died, um, and um, the current leaders, who were really temporary leaders, weren't on, were not sure what to do. Hillel shows up, and Hillel, they hear that Hillel's around. Everyone knew Hillel was a great sage, and so they ask Hillel what they should do. Hillel resolves the issue for them based on what teachings he had heard from Shmai and Aftalion, explains his reasoning for it, and um, tells them, yes, we do bring the Passover sacrifice on Shabbos. Recognizing that Hillel was um, a much greater scholar than any of the leading scholars at the time, Hillel was immediately point, appointed as the president of the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Council of Israel, effectively making him the Jewish spiritual leader. That was the official position of the Jewish spiritual leader. There was always this Supreme Council, Sanhedrin. We once did a class on the Sanhedrin, but we've spoken about it many times, which was the Supreme Council of Israel that led Jews for the first 1,500 years or so of Judaism. Um, Hillel becomes the president of the Sanhedrin and essentially the leader of Israel. Yes. I have two questions. What was the excuse that he gave for allowing the sacrifice to occur on Shabbos? Well, he gave a number of explanations based on what we call drash, which is the way that we can deduce things from the wording of the Torah. But he said this was his. This was the tradition that they had been taught from his teacher Shmaya and Aftalia. They It had always been done. Whenever whenever the eve of Passover was on Shabbos, they always brought a Passover sacrifice. That's the way they did it. That's an excellent question. They didn't have last names. Last names is a 19th century invention. Um, so they didn't have last names. Historically, most, um, there were families, and we once did a class on um, Jewish family names. Um, there were prominent families, um, but, the, but that people were called by their family name. But generally, people were called by their name and their father's name. That was the way people were referred to. Um, most scholars were called by their name and their father's name, except for those that were extremely prominent. Everyone, everyone knew exactly who they were. So Hillel was just called Hillel. Does that word uh, Hillel mean something? <coughs> it means Hallel 
pronounced differently means praise. Um, I think he's the first one we know of that was called Hillel. Afterwards, it becomes a common Jewish name. Um, was it a common Jewish name beforehand? I, I don't know. Uh, but the, he was just known as Hillel. In fact, even the term Rabbi, which is kind of the original, later became Rav. Today in English you say Rabbi. Uh, but the original term Rabbi wasn't yet used at the time. It was only later generations that they started employing that. So he, they were just known by first name basis. Hillel. No, that's how he was known. And so Hillel is now appointed as the leader of the Sanhedrin. His first as his deputy, um, a position called Av Bethdin, the father of the, of the court, um, was a fellow called Menachem. We don't know much about Menachem. He doesn't seem to have lasted very long because he was taken away. Um, it's not clear by whom, but presumably Herod, who we know was a tyrant, didn't like him for some reason. And in his place, Shammai becomes the deputy, and he's Hillel's good friend um, and colleague. Um, and often Hillel and Shammai are mentioned always together. Yes, and Yes, I mentioned earlier, his brother offered to support him. So Hillel built a school, a yeshiva in Jerusalem, where he taught many students. The Talmud says that uh, he had 80 very prominent sages that were his students. Among his most notable students is Yonatan ben Uziel. Yonatan ben Uziel wrote one of the first Tirgumim, one, or at least the oldest Tirgum that we have, Targum, the oldest Aramaic translation and elucidation of the Torah. Um, was written by Yonatan ben Uziel. Um, also another well-known student of Hillel was Rabban Yochanan ben Zakkai, who lived a very, very long life and was leader of Israel at the time of the destruction of the Second Temple, some 60 years after the death of Hillel. His colleague Shammai, also opened a school. They were known as Bet Hillel, the house of Hillel, and Bet Shammai, the house of Shammai. Um, two great schools in Jerusalem. And both schools continued to function for 60 years after their deaths until the destruction of the temple and the destruction of the city of Jerusalem. Um, these two great schools um, were the two prominent schools in Jerusalem. And these two schools became known for dozens of disagreements in Jewish law that are mentioned throughout the Mishnah and Mishnaic era teachings. Um, there are dozens, not hundreds of disagreements between these two schools um, in the law. Bet Hillel, the school of Hillel, was generally the larger and more dominant of the two schools and generally held a majority in the Sanhedrin, in the Supreme Council. Um, the members, a majority of their members were from the school of Hillel, and as a result, um, in most instances, the Sanhedrin ruled according to the school of Hillel. There were a couple exceptions. There was even one time where the school of Shammai wanted to pass certain laws, and so they um, engineered it in a way that they, that they, that they had a majority one day, um, making sure all their members, enough of their members showed up, and not all of Hillel's members have showed up, they had a majority, and they were able to pass a number of laws that day um, following, the, uh, following their view. Uh, but So there were these two views, usually the halacha, the law, followed the school of Hillel. 
Um, but despite the many differences that Talmud says, there are many, many differences in halacha, the students still got along well with each other, they respected each other, and the Talmud says they even their children married each other. They had no qualms or hesitancy, even though they had disagreements in Jewish law between the two schools, they had no hesitancy, kind of, they didn't split into two totally different, you know, sects, but they continued to intermarry and they continued to live together in peace and harmony, just having various disagreements in halacha, in the Torah. Now, when the Torah was given, and we've spoken about this in previous classes, the Torah was originally given as with an, an oral teaching that was taught to Moshe, God taught Moses on Mount Sinai, this oral teaching, these laws and various other things that was taught to Moses on Mount Sinai that Moses taught the people. At the end of Moses' life, God told him to write a document, what we call the five books of Moses, that will note the various laws or cryptically mention the various laws. But they're not mentioned clearly. We actually have a code that we use to decipher the or a key we use to decipher the written law it's called the Shlosh Esrei Midot, the 13 rules um, to decipher the written law in order to find the oral teachings within the written within the written Torah. So, but the Torah itself it was a code that was our code of law that had been passed down generation to generation orally. And over the years, <clears throat> the code grew and evolved because it was applied to new, law, new situations. Whenever you have a body of law, new cases are going to come up. New questions are going to come up. As you apply it, you build what today we call case law. In other words, it gets applied to new laws as new things happen. In addition, the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Council of Judaism, when it was around, had the authority to legislate new laws, and they did legislate many new laws. Last week we spoke about one of those, the Tuchumen, the distance of how far you could go on Shabbat. So there are various laws that were legislated over the years. So as a result, the body of the oral law really grew in size and evolved over time. Um, the laws are still the original laws, but they're being applied, and so therefore it, it grows over time. Um, in the days of the men of the great assembly, which the Knesset Hagdola, we did a class about it a couple months ago, which was a group of, led by Ezra Hasofer, Ezra the scribe, um, led a group of scholars who made some major um, innovations to Judaism. We spoke about that a few weeks ago when we spoke about Ezra. Um, so one of the things that they did was, they, and this is at the beginning of the Second Temple period, um, about 300 years before Hillel, um, they, um, they reorganized the oral law into various different subjects. They came up with 600 subjects and they organized the oral law into 600 subjects. And it continued to evolve over the hundreds of years since then. In the days of Hillel, Hillel took upon himself the task of reorganizing the oral law. And he reorganized the oral law into 60 different subjects, known as Mesichtot, and then organized those 60 subjects into six orders, or six starim. In other words, six groups, each one with various sub subjects within them, and that way it's easier, the more organized it is, the easier it is to retain. Um, and that system remained, continued for some 200 years after Hillel, and they continued to study and teach using that stress organizational structure that Hillel had 
put together. And, um, and that was eventually, some 200 years later, was written by a descendant of Hillel, um, Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, um, wrote, uh, then compiled those um, teachings into the book of the Mishnah, which is the first book of our oral teachings. And we've also done a class on the Mishnah. So the structure of the Mishnah, at least, and the subject, the way each thing is organized, was put together by Hillel. The Talmud gives us a number of fascinating stories about Hillel. And we know both from his teachings and his stories that we have um, of his love for people, his deep insight into people, um, understanding people, his patience. And he had, he had patience for everyone, accepting of everyone. The Talmud tells us one story demonstrating how he was accepting of everyone. There was once a fellow who wanted to convert to Judaism. A non-Jew wanted to convert to Judaism. But he didn't believe in the oral traditions, in the oral Torah. He only believed in the five books of Moses. Now, there were certain sects at that time, notably a group called the Sadducees, Tzidukim, and another group called the Baithusis, Baitusim, who also didn't believe in the oral teachings as we have it, had their own version. So anyway, this fellow says he only wants to study the written Torah, doesn't want to study the oral Torah. And first he went to Hillel's colleague, Shammai, and asked to, be, to convert, and Shammai sent him away. Because if you're not prepared to accept all of Judaism, then you cannot join the Jewish people. You've got to be accept, prepared to accept all of Judaism. He then went to Hillel and said, I'd like to convert to Judaism, but I only, want to, I only believe in the written Torah, not in the oral Torah. So Hillel said, okay, I will convert you, but first you have to study. You've got to study about Judaism. Let me first teach you Hebrew. You've got to study Hebrew. So they sat, they sat down to study, and Hillel teaches him the Hebrew alphabet. He teaches him the Aleph, Bet, the Gimel, the Dalit, teaches him each of the Hebrew alphabet. Then he says, okay, lesson over for today. Come back tomorrow. We continue our lesson. The fellow comes back the next day. And this time, Hillel pointed to the Tav, the last of the Hebrew alphabet, and he said, that's an Aleph. And then he pointed to a Shin, and he said, that's a Bet. And then he pointed to a Resh, he said, that's a Gimel. Pointed to the Kuf, he said, that's a Dalit, and he taught him the same Hebrew alphabet, but backwards. The fellow said, one second, yesterday you taught me them differently. What happened? Now you're teaching us something totally new. So Hillel says, well, how do you know which one's right? How do you know anything that I'm teaching you is right? How do you know what the Hebrew alphabet are? How do you know the meaning of the Hebrew language? How do you know what the words mean? How do you know any of it? Because of tradition. That's the tradition. That's the oral tradition. That's how you know it. So you need to believe in oral tradition in order to be able to read the written Torah. You can't read it without some sort of tradition on how to read it, what the words mean. If you're accepting oral tradition, accept the whole thing. 
And so the fellow agreed, and he con con continued his conversion and successfully converted to Judaism. There was a second fellow who came up with this wild idea. He came to Hillel's calling Shammai first, and he said, teach me the entire Torah, but I want you to teach it to me while I'm standing on one foot. And Shammai said, that's impossible. The Torah is huge. And so he sent him away. The fellow then came to Hillel, and he said, convert, I'd like to convert to Judaism, but I want you to teach me the whole Torah while I'm standing on one foot. Hillel said, not a problem, stand on one foot. And he said, in famous words, what is hated to you, what you dislike, don't do to your fellow. That's the whole Torah. The rest is all commentary. Now go study it. <laughs> and the fellow did, and um, the fellow did, and he converted to Judaism. And of course, the statement of Hillel is very powerful that at the core of the Torah is what is what you dislike, don't do to others. Later, other religions, Christianity and others, took that from Hillel. Um, and you know, re reframed, re reframed it in other words. But uh, the original source for it is from Hillel himself. Then the Talmud continues a third story. There was a fellow who was once passing a Jewish school, and he overheard the teacher teaching the students. And they were studying about the clothing of the Kohen Gadol, the high priest. We learned about it a few weeks ago. The breastplate and the golden forehead plate and the blue cloak, and he was listening, standing outside and listening, and he was amazed. And so he knocked on the door, and the teacher let him in, and he walked into the classroom, and he said, I heard you teaching about these beautiful clothing. Who wears these beautiful clothing? And so the teacher explained, the Kohen Gadol, the high priest, that serves in the temple, teaches these, wears these beautiful clothing. He says, I want to wear them too. So he goes to Shammai, and he says, I'd like to convert to Judaism. I'd like to become a Kohen Gadol, a high priest. Shammai says, not possible. To be a Kohen Gadol, to be a high priest, you need to first be a Kohen, a priest. You cannot become a priest. It's not a voluntary position that you choose. Only somebody who is a male descendant of Aaron can become a Kohen, can be a priest. Right? You have to be a male descendant of Aaron. Only then can you become a Kohen Gadol. Since you're not a male descendant of Aaron, even if you convert to Judaism, you cannot be a Kohen. Fellow says, nope, only want to convert if I can be a Kohen Gadol. So Shammai sends him away. He then went to Hillel. And he went to Hillel. And Hillel said, sure, but first you've got to start studying Torah. And so he begins to study Torah. And as he's studying, he sees... Um, uh, he, as he's studying, he comes across the verse that says that no non-Kohen is allowed to enter the temple. He says, who's a non-Kohen? Anyone who's not a male descendant of Aaron. What about the leaders of the Sanhedrin of the Supreme Council? The president of, of the Supreme Council, can they enter the temple, for, do service, serve, serve in the temple? Nope, they're not Kohen. If they can't do it, how would I ever be able to do it? if I was in the sense of Aaron, and he goes ahead with his conversion, knowing that he will not, never be able to become the Kohen Gadol, the high priest. The Talmud concludes that later these three 
um, these three um, converts met each other and they shared their stories and they all came to the conclusion that if, for, if it would have only been the um, Shammai's strictness, we would have never become Jewish. Only thanks to Hillel's patience did we all become Jewish. The Talmud tells another beautiful story about Hillel's patience. One time, Hillel's patience was famous, and so one time two people made a bet. One, someone said, I will give you 400 zuz if you can make Hillel angry. But if you don't, you, owe, you give me 400 zuz. So the fellow now had, he was there to do it, and so now he's on a mission to get Hillel angry. So he goes to Hillel's house on Friday afternoon as Hillel is washing himself his hair for Shabbos, and he stands outside of Hillel's house and he starts shouting, doesn't knock on the door, he starts shouting, where is Hillel? Where is Hillel? Hillel gets dressed, he comes outside, and he says, yes, my son, what would you like? And he, the fellow says, I have a question for you. Hillel says, ask, my son. And so he says, why is it that the Babylonians have round heads? Hillel, by the way, was, Babylon, was from Babylon. Why do they have round heads? So Hillel says, that is a, wonderful, that is a very good question that you asked. Hillel had a different answer. He said, that is a very good question that you asked. They have round heads because they don't have very good midwives. They don't do a good job at birth. <laughs> Hillel goes back in... Hillel goes... Hillel goes back inside, back into the shower, and a, few, a little while later, the fellow's shouting again outside, Where is Hillel? Where is Hillel? And so Hillel gets dressed again, comes outside and says, What would you like? And he says, I have a question to ask. Hill says, ask my son. He says, why are the eyes of the Tarmudium, Tarmudium are pre- presumably the Bedouins, the people that live in the desert. Why are they narrow? Why do they have narrow eyes? Hill says, that's a very great question that you asked. That's because they live in the sand and their na- eyes are narrow so that the sand shouldn't go into their eyes. Hill then goes back inside to continue his shower and the fellow waits a little bit and then again begins shouting, where is Hillel? Where is Hillel? Hillel again gets dressed, comes outside and says, what would you like? He says, I have a question for you. Hillel says, ask my son. He says, why is it that the Africans have wide feet? Hillel answers, because they live in swamps. Swamps. So they have to be able to jump over the, the water. So he says, I have many questions for you, but I'm afraid you're going to get angry with me. So Hillel wraps, sits down, wraps himself, sits down, and says, ask whatever you like. The fellow, so the fellow says, are you Hillel, who they call leader of Israel? Hillel says, yes, why? And the fellow says, may there be no more like you. He says, why do you say that? And the fellow says, because of you, I just lost 400 zuz. <laughs> Hillel says, because I made a bet 
that I could get you angry and I lost the bet. Hillel says, if so, you should lose another 400 zuz. You won't get Hillel angry. So we have, those are some beautiful stories that the Talmud tells about Hillel. We have also a lot of very famous teachings of Hillel in Pirkei Avot. Perhaps the most famous teaching of Hillel, he says, be like the student, like be a student of Aaron, Aaron, Moses' brother, who was Ohev Shalom, Verodef Shalom. He loved peace and he chased peace. He loved people and would do everything to bring them closer to the Torah. So one should be like, um, one should be like um, Aaron. He also said, um, if you try to make yourself great, then you will be lost. You will be destroyed. He also said another famous saying. He said, "Im ein anili mili." If I am not for myself, who is for me? If I am only for myself, what am I? Meaning that if I don't do my job, no one else is going to do it for me. But if I only think about myself, what am I? What am I here for? A similar statement, he said, um, it's in the Talmud, Im anikan hakol kan. If I am here, everything is here. Vim ein anikan, if I am not here, mi kan, who is here. And there's a statement of responsibility. When I'm here, I can get things done. If I don't step up, don't count on anyone else to get things done. Can't, can't rely on anyone else. You want to get things done? You've got to step up to the plate yourself and get it done. Uh, another famous statement that he said in Pirkei Avot, he said, Don't separate yourselves from the community. Sometimes people say, yeah, everyone else is doing it like that. I'm going to do it differently. Don't be different. Sometimes you do have to when they're doing it wrong or what they're doing is um, unethical, then you separate yourself from the group. But just everybody's doing it this way, and I want to be different. Don't be different. It's okay to follow the crowd, just to be part of the group, not to be different and separate yourself from everybody else. He also said another very famous statement, Do not judge your fellow until you reach his place. Um, don't judge someone in... Our modern way of saying it is until you're in their shoes, right? So that originally came from Hillel as well. He also said about secrets, don't ever share something that you don't want people to find out. Because as soon as you share it, everyone will find out. That's true. He also... He also said, don't say, I will study when I have the time to study, because you will never have the time. I see his statements are very famous. Everyone seems to know that. Um, he once saw a person who had been drowned in a body floating in a river, and he said, you drowned others, you got drowned. Um, apparently he knew this was a person who had drowned others, and he taught the value of providence. In other words, God... Um, or midah keneged midah, measure for measure, that um, whatever we do to somebody else, God eventually does back to us. So we have to know that the way we treat others is the way God will treat us as well.
He also made a number of laws. One thing that he did that we mention him every year at our Seder is he believed that when we eat the on the Seder night, there are three things that were supposed to be eaten. The Passover sacrifice that they had in Jerusalem when they, the temple stood, the matzah, and the marah. And he, uh, he believed that the best way to do it was to eat all three together, to make a sandwich using the matzah and put inside the marah and the meat, the Passover meat. And so we still do that. We don't have the meat, we don't have the sacrifice, but we still do that today. We make a sandwich with the matzah and the marah. Um, he also uh, made a he made a number of rules. There's um, to uh, to help strengthen the Torah. One rule that he made was that there was a rule that when you sold a home in a walled city in Israel, like in Jerusalem, you had the right to buy it back for a full year. The buyer had the right to buy it back for a full year um, after the um, after the purchase. Once the year was over, the buyer could not force back the sale. That was the law. However, so what would buyers do? They would disappear. They would disappear if they knew that the seller wanted to buy it back. <clears throat> the buyers would disappear so that <clears throat> the seller <clears throat> could not give them back the money. And so he made the rule that if you can't find the, the, the seller can't find the buyer to buy it back, um, the seller had the right to give it to the, the money to the court, and that way buy it back without the buyer um, agreeing to enforce that law. There's also a rule, yes? It was around during temple period, but once we lost our independence, um, it no longer continued. <clears throat> Hillel also, there's a rule in the Torah that every seven years, um, the, and we, we spoke about the seventh year, um, we're in a Shemitah year now, every seven years, all loans that are due already are absolved. Any loan of a Jew to another Jew that are due are absolved at the end of the Shemitah year, which would be at the end of this year. And so people were afraid to lend close to the Shemitah year because they were afraid they wouldn't get their money back. Um, it became a problem. People couldn't borrow money. And so Hillel came up with a workaround. The rule is that only private loans are absolved, not public loans, not loans owned by the community. And so... What Hillel did was, he said that anybody who wishes can hand over their loans, gift their loans to the community, to the courts. And then the court has the right to collect because it's a public loan now. And then what they could do is they then designate the fellow, the lender, as the person with responsibility to collect, and they give him the right to keep whatever he collects. So that way a person can get around the, um, can lend and get around the absolving of the loans in the Shemitah year. Um, and that way he was able to get people to, um, that was able to lend money once again. So Hillel led Israel, um, the Talmud says, for 40 years. Um, Hillel is one of a number of scholars of the Talmud says, uh, one of three scholars of the Talmud says lived for 120 years. 
um, but he lived a long life. He led Israel for 40 years, and he died 60 years b- before the destruction of the temple, or about the year 8. So he lived um, through the reign of Herod. Um, he became leader just after, a little bit after Herod, the third year of Herod, it says, and he was leader of Israel for, uh, through Herod, through his son became leader afterwards, um, through for, for 40 years um, during this very difficult time of Israel. After his death, he had made such an impact on Israel that the sages decided to appoint his grandson, Rabban Gamliel, as his successor as president of the Sanhedrin. His grandson was a great recognized Torah scholar. He's known as Rabban Gamliel Hazaken because there's two Rabban Gamliels. He was appointed as the president of the Sanhedrin. That actually continued well until then, um, for all of Jewish history, the Supreme Council, the Sanhedrin's presidents, were appointed from, by the members of the Sanhedrin, um, were appointed by usually the greatest scholar, was appointed as leader of the Sanhedrin. From Hillel's, after Hillel's death, his grandson was appointed as the leader of the Sanhedrin. And following that, his son, Rabban Shimon ben Gamliel, was then appointed as leader of the Sanhedrin. Um, when Rabban Shimon ben Gamliel died during the war, um, of the war that led to the destruction of the Second Temple, um, they appointed Rabban Yochanan ben Zakkai, who had been a student of Hillel, um, as leader to lead them through the crisis. But then later, um, Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai left that position once the war things quieted down and the Sanhedrin reconvened in Yavne. He, um, he uh, left his position and he handed it over to Rabban Shimon ben Gamliel's son, known as Rabban Gamliel as well. And so it continued within the family of Hillel, the presidency of the Sanhedrin, continued with Hillel's descendants, all scholars, um, and continued within that family for the next 300 years, over 300 years, until the 10th generation of Hillel, whose name was also Hillel, often referred to as Hillel Hasheni, the second Hillel, was the final president of the Sanhedrin at the time when the Romans forcibly disbanded the Sanhedrin um, in the mid-300s. So Hillel's descendants continued um, to lead the Sanhedrin for the next 300 years. Um, Hillel's, uh, Hillel's school became, as we said before, the dominant school and really the source of Jewish law. Um, later, when the Mishnah was written, the first book of our oral law to be compiled by, uh, was written by a great-grandson of Hillel, Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, almost 200 years after Hillel's death. And when it was put together, most of the laws were accepted following the school of Hillel, following the teachings of um, Hillel. And so Hillel left for us his legacy in both laws, in the structure of the Mishnah, and of course in the many, many teachings that he had given us.